Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Our reading for today is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13 from verses 1 to 21. 2 Samuel chapter 13 from verses 1 to 21. I read. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shimea, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, Why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother, Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight, so I may watch her and then eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace. Go to your brother's house, go to your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said, and everyone left him. Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother, Amnon, in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, Don't force me. Such a a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact... He hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, Get up and get out. No, she said to him, Sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, Get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing an honey robe, 
for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her honored robe. She was, tore the honored robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon your brother been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When the king heard all this, he was furious. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, good morning, everyone. Uh, particularly, special welcome to you. If this is your first time, we're really happy to have you with us. My name is Femi. Um, we've been doing a sermon series since the beginning of September, and we called it Idols and the City. And it's based on the fact that, well, you know, we're a church, so we have to preach the Bible. And the Bible actually would say, it, it paints a particular picture of humanity. And it says this, look, there's one God that created human beings in his image. We even confess that on our, um, when we're talking about statement of faith together. But he says, look, because there's one God um, that created us in our image, he also created us all to be worshippers. So we all worship something. Now, the point is, if you don't worship that God, then you worship what is called an idol. And we said, look, if you look in the city of Lagos, you may not be seeing idols like these graven images that are on the screen, but any time you worship, something takes more of your devotion than the one true God. You are worshiping an idol. And so this series is based on the fact that there are three major idols that we find in the city of Lagos that takes our devotion. One is money, and most of us, all our sermons in September were devoted to that, treating um, sermons in, in, on money. And then uh, this month is sex, and the last month is power. So this month, October is sex, and then November is power. Um, so we've already done, I think, three, three sermons this month already, if I'm not mistaken. My two? Three. We've done three. So this is the fourth one. All right. So let me start off uh, with this um, uh, from an article. It's about, about a guy called Larry Nasser. So I want to read about Larry Nasser to you. Larry Nasser practiced at the very top tier with some of the most elite American gymnasts. In 1986, he began working with USA Gymnastics. That's the governing body that selects Olympic teams. He started working with them as an athletic trainer. He went to medical school at Michigan State University and then became the chief medical coordinator for USA Gymnastics in 1996. He attended the Atlanta 96 Olympic Games. He also attended the Sydney Games in 2000, Beijing in 2008, and London in 2012. Essentially, this guy was a very accomplished person and a very powerful person. Larry was also a serial sexual abuser. About 300 women came forward testifying to his deplorable actions, many of them minors, when he abused them. Megan Halicek went to Dr. Larry Nasser as a 15-year-old gymnast suffering from a fractured spine. But during what was supposed to be a routine appointment, Nasser assaulted her. She said, quote, again and again and again. He abused me all the while telling me stories about his Olympic journey. I closed my eyes tight. I held my breath and I wanted to puke, she recalled. To this day, those feelings are still there. A judge sentenced Nasser to 175 years in prison for his crimes in January 
2018. Sadly, there are many Larinassas around us today. They may not be in the same, at the same level with which, at which he um, 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 uh, did his own or practiced his abuse, but even the abuse of one person is horrible enough. And even more sadly is that there are many vict victims of sexual abuse in our society, in our churches, maybe even in this church. Sexual abuse has long been a taboo subject in our society and in our churches, and that needs to stop. While Larry Nasser practiced in the secular space, um, if you've listened, there's been a scandal that's also been going on that's ripped the Catholic Church in, in the United States. What does that mean? The secular space is not the only one. There, we Christians are not exempt from this. The hashtag MeToo and Time's Up movements, uh, whatever your reservations are about them, I think they are positive developments towards the injustices that arise when these harrowing actions continue. They are left to fester, and then we are not allowed to speak about them. Now, I want to say, though, that we in the church must be at the forefront of opposition to sexual abuse. Why? Because this very ancient Bible that we read has long ago taught us about the sanctity of sex, the horror of sexual abuse, and how do we behave towards those who are abused. Case in point, the story of Tamar and Amnon, like we just read. Let me set a bit of the background. The story is set within the immediate, within context of, the, of David's immediate family. David is the second, Israel's second king, but also their greatest king. And the players here are Amnon, his first son, Jonadab, Amnon's cousin and advisor, Absalom, uh, David's third son, Tamar, his daughter and Absalom's sister, and David himself. I don't know if you're like me, when you read the Bible, you want to not just read verses in, and chapters alone, but you want to read books of the Bible. Why? Because when you read books of the Bible, you can trace themes that help you see what the writer is trying to say. And that helps you with particular verses so that you don't quote verses out of context. And when you read 1 and 2 Samuel, there are big things that are going on there about God establishing his king, the, the kingdom of God. All of those things are there. But the thing about this particular story is the amount of time, the vividness, the almost step-by-step -step account that is given in this story, the writer wants you not to miss something. He wants you to be shocked. He wants you to be aghast, repulsed, angry, sad. And lastly, not to be quiet when we see these things happen around us. Let me warn you from the beginning. This is a difficult read, and it's going to be a difficult sermon. And of course it should be so. Because Tamar went through something very difficult. What we would learn is that when sex becomes an idol in society, it becomes desacralized, and it creates the conditions for sexual abuse to occur, thus making sexual victims. Now, I should also say this. If you are someone here who has suffered sexual abuse at any point in your life, there is ultimately hope for you. And we also learn that you can be restored in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I've titled this sermon, When Sex Makes Victims. And it will be explored under three subheadings. One, becoming a sexual abuse victim. 
Two, the plight of a sexual abuse victim. Three, the healing of a sexual abuse victim. Family, a sexual abuse, abuse victim, the plight of a sexual abuse victim, and the healing of a sexual abuse victim. So let's go into the first point, becoming a sexual abuse victim. Now when you read verse 1, we're told that Amnon fell in love with Tamar. What's wrong with falling in love? Nothing. Except, don't be mistaken, it's not the kind of love that we understand. It's not the romantic love. How do we know? Well, first of all, in verse 2, look, it says, Amnon became so obsessed with Tamar. And the obsession that he had with Tamar had something to do with something he wanted to get from her. It wasn't just oh, I'm obsessed with her, is that she has something I need to get, and he was prevented from getting it. Again, we read that in verse 2. She was a virgin, which means that she was of marriageable age, and she was sexually mature, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. He was obsessed. There was something he wanted to get, but he couldn't. He was somehow prevented from it, and this made poor Amnon haggard every morning. Verse 4. Why do, you, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Because he was prevented from doing what he wanted to do to her. How is he going to overcome such a barrier? Well, I don't know. Some of us have cousins. Some of our cousins are nice. Some of our cousins are good. Some of them, you know, just they're a bit of irritants. How many of you have evil cousins? He's wise, truly says, Jonadab but he's also evil. Now, what does he do? When he combines both of these things, he plots a scheme that enables Amnon to be able to overcome that barrier so that Amnon and Tamar could be in the same place. So what does he do? He says, hey, pretend like you're ill. And you know, there's nothing that elicits sympathy more than being ill. I used to do that a lot when I was a kid with my mom. You, You actually get ill. But then what happens is the medicine kicks in, it starts to work, but you've enjoyed the pampering, so you say, oh, it's so, it's so hard. After one or two days, your mom actually she said, go and wash plates. You're yeah, not that ill again. And so that illness, the pretension of illness, then brought his father, David. David came, saw him, and at that point, he's ready to give him anything he wants. So what does he want? He said, oh, all the people that are here serving me food, I don't really like, I want someone, a family member to come and feed me. I want them to come and make food for me. I want Tamar to come and do that. So later David tells, uh, verse 7, he tells Tamar to go to her brother's house and then what is she meant to do? She goes there, she kneads bread, she bakes it, and she serves him in a pan. He doesn't want to um, take in the pan and so he sends everyone out and then she's ready to give him on her hand. Why? Well, one is that not only... Um, did David, not only was, uh, did uh, Amnon make David um, sympathize with him, but also Tamar. Tamar saw her brother. Her brother was ill, and she wanted to help her brother. Second is that even when he said everyone should leave, let me tell you, the last thing that entered into Tamar's uh, head was that he was going to try to rape her. You know why? She trusted him. She trusted him. David trusted him, go to your brother's house. He, she trusted him, of course my brother will not do, my half-brother will not do anything like this to me. And that is exactly what he needed. 
Most people that will tell you that they've been sexually abused will tell you this. It came from someone who they trusted. Listen to one of NASA's victims. NASA's victims said the doctors kindly won over their trust, making them feel special or privileged because of his position with USA Gymnastics. He operated in a spot where injuries can end careers and young athletes defer to his authority. Listen to what someone said. Quote, he was always that person who would stick up for me and make me feel like he had my back. The more I think about it, the more I realize how twisted he was, how he manipulated me to make me think that he had my back when he didn't. With Narcissus' uh, victims, it was both his expertise, but also the fact that he seemed caring that made them trust him. In Tamar's case, it's worse. It's one of her own family. It's a wonder why many people, when you hear their stories, they will tell you, it was my older cousin that violated me. It was uncle this that violated me. Some people, unfortunately, it was even their own parents that violated them. Why? Because to enable sexual abusers to go on and do their thing, they need the key element of trust. And uh, Amnon sought that trust and he used it. Well, soon enough, the one who supposedly was in love with Tamar, you know what he did? He grabbed her, verse 11. Verse 12, he forced her. Let me tell you something about love. The word love does not come with the word force. Neither does it come with the word grab. They don't come together. In fact, once you do that, you, you misunderstand love because it's meant to be freely given just to show that this guy was not really in love with her. He wanted something from her. That is why when in verse 12 she was appealing to him, he ignored her appeals until he got what he truly wanted. And then you get this very, very chilling part. Verse 14. Because he was stronger than she, he raped her. How horrible. At the end of the day, you want to get something you want, something that should be freely given, but because the person doesn't want to freely give, you then take something that you have above the person's power, and you get what you want. In this single act of self-seeking pleasure, which probably lasted five to ten minutes, Amnon had changed the course of Tamar's life forever. And for ill. For what? Maybe you can listen to Thomas cries. Maybe some of you have cried like this when she said, what about me? Please think about me. Where will I get rid of my disgrace? Or if you don't have that compassion, what about you? Think of the consequences. Don't be like these wicked, foolish men in, this, in Israel. But you know what happens when sex is an idol, and it was an idol for him, and sexual drive is treated just like when you are very hungry, this is exactly what happened to him. He damned all the consequences. When people, as I like to say, they stop thinking here, and they start thinking when they think down there, they do all manner of things which, if you laid out, here are the consequences of what is going to happen to you. He still needs to first appease that drive. That's why he damned the consequences. But did he think about her? 
What about her if he wasn't, if he wanted to put the punishment upon himself? What about her? Don't you understand? If he's feeding an animalistic um, uh, desire in himself, then the one who is going to help him to appease that is no longer a human being. That one becomes an object. So she's talking. We don't hear that he says anything until he rapes her. She becomes a mere object for him. Look how dreadful it was, how he dehumanized her. Verse 15, then Amnon hated her. Wow. I thought he was in love with her. No. Guys, because love, a lust, not love, is the opposite of hatred. They come from the same source. He hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Well, it makes sense because he finally got what he wanted. Now that he's got what he wanted, his true emotions to her as a human being was now on display. He didn't think of her as a human being. What did he say to her? Get up. Get out. She'd now become an object of scorn. In fact, later when he says, and she refused to get out, because she's like, this thing that you've done to me is, if now if you send me out, it's even worse than how you violated me. Look, this woman, he called his servants to come and bundle out a daughter of the king, just to show you that he really didn't think about her as a human being. And then what did he say to his servant? Put, get this woman out of my sight. Now, listen. In the Hebrew, it's not actually get this woman out of my sight. In the Hebrew, there is actually no word there, hum, uh, woman. The translator just inserted it. In the Hebrew, literally, he says, get this out of my sight. It had finally been appeased, and he saw her as an object. Why is this thing so viscerally bad? Why is it, maybe you hear and... The, your suffering when you were a child or something is that somebody flogged you a lot of times. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying to flog people, you know, is not a particularly good thing, although some of us will say here that being flogged was a good thing for us. But why is it that this, this kind of suffering, why is it so horrible? Do you know why? Because sex is a sacred thing. By sacred, I mean something that is holy, something you hold dear. As I said in the first service, when I was in school, you could abuse me. Say anything you want. Say anything about my fr friends. Abuse all of us. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, I was a fighter, but, you know, I didn't just fight anyhow. If you said this to me, though, your papa or your mama, oh, my God, I don't care if you are three times my size, I will fight. Because it just, at that point, you have just desecrated something that means so much to me. Why? I held my parents to be sacred. Why do people see it as such a terrible and barbaric thing when people go and destroy graves of people? Why? Because when we go to the gravesite, we see it as a sacred place. The reason why she felt so horrible, why she mourned, why she wept aloud, was because something that was sacred to her had just been taken away from her and she had no choice in the matter. What he treated as fulfilling as an, an animalistic desire, she felt to be a desecration of her temple. You know the very funny thing? 
is that when sex is made an idol, ironically, you start to treat it as a common thing, a must-have thing. And in that situation, sexual victims are never far off. And our culture is one where we are defying sex. And it's not just the influence of Western culture. No, 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 no. We've always had it. We deify sex. It's such a wonderful thing. Ironically, when you do that and you have it as a God, it's not that all of a sudden sex now matters so much more and we keep it sacred. No. When you put sex and make it an ultimate thing, it eventually becomes desacralized and you have to make it a common thing. Sex on demand. So what do we do? We live in a time where many of our celebrities, for instance, make musical videos where women that appear on those videos are not there for anything else than to titillate young men's sexual urges. Am I wrong? I mean, you get a guy who is singing, I don't know, maybe he's singing about Nigeria, maybe he's singing about Lagos, such a wonderful place. He's singing particular lyrics about maybe Ebutemeta, maybe Ojuelegba, something, and then I decide. I decide, two women, we don't even see their faces. They turn their backside and they're meant to be shaking. For what purpose? And then, in the same breath, maybe somebody who is a feminist comes on the air or radio airways and is interviewing that person because he's a creative genius. So we celebrate these people as ambassadors and give them all the airtime to perpetuate and catechize, they perpetuate their nonsense and catechize our young women to see, uh, young men to see women as objects that are meant to fulfill their sexual desires. We deify sex as an idol and we continue to create the conditions that allow sexual victims to continue to be produced. Now, not every woman is raped, but some are harassed. How? Through groping. Some people here, probably, you've never been raped, but somebody has touched you in a way they shouldn't. Through sexual advan- unwanted sexual advances, and there's nothing you can do about it, you're just meant to smile. You're meant to pretend as though he didn't mean what he meant, and he wants you to behave as though he didn't mean what he meant, but both of you know what he meant. Or sexual requests tied to favors, a promotion, or maybe an academic grade, especially if you went to Nigerian University, you know what I'm talking about. Indecent exposures. Guys, our culture is an unknown producing factory. And this has to stop. Second point. The plight of a sexual abuse victim. So what's the plight of a sexual abuse victim after the deed, after the abuse? Hopefully they can get some kind of sucker. But what we find here is very chilling. First of all, look at verse 13 again. Where is she left? She's left disgrace. Where would I get rid of my disgrace? Disgrace. Disgrace. Think of that word. Disgrace. Disgrace. Literally, somebody who carried herself with grace has had her grace undone, the grace has been turned into shame. So vividly expressed, such that the daughter of a king who wore an honest robe, she has to rip that robe and put ashes on her head. Literally, she's 
bringing to light in the physical what has happened to her emotionally and spiritually. Her heart has been ripped and now her head is mourning with ashes. And so she walks down in verse 19. She is weeping aloud. Weeping aloud. Who is going to hear her? Because up until now, as we see in verse uh, 14 and verse 16, when she spoke to Amnon, he said, but he refused to listen to her. But he refused to listen to her. Now she's no longer with Amnon. She's been bundled out. And she's weeping aloud. Thankfully, I'm sure somebody is going to listen to her. Will someone listen to her? Will we listen to our victims? Well, she gets two reactions. Typical reactions from what abuse victims receive. One, keep them quiet. Two, keep quiet. Keep them quiet. Oh, thank God. Our brother Absalom, here he comes. My brother will help me. Finally, I will get something. My brother comes. And what does Absalom do? Verse 20. Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now. Oh, my God. Those are very chilling words. Sadly, Tamar is not, was not the last woman to hear those chilling words after the abuse. Back to Larry Nasser. I hear what one of his victims said. I'm so angry. After realizing that we were abused, USA Gymnastics, remember the, uh, the, the governing body, let him continue to molest other gymnasts when they told me there was an investigation going on. They told me to be quiet. I thought they were doing the right thing, and I didn't want to tip off the investigation. I trusted them, and I shouldn't have. You see, when we chip in our view of sex, we do the same for sexual assault. What do I mean by that? The problem, when I say we chip in our view of sex, there's one, the sexual liberationists, that want sex to be multiplied everywhere. Anyone should have sex when they, ever, when they want to, as long as you are over the age of 18 or what have you. But then, like Emmanuel showed us two weeks ago, you also have those who are uh, purists, if you like, or not even purists, they're just prudes. And they basically look at sex as, sex is not for pleasure, sex is just that thing that we have to do to give birth to children, and just have to give to men. So, you know what, it's just that thing there, it's an inconvenience. For them, it's not sacred. So what happens? Oh, you've been sexually molested. Oh, that's bad. It's not good. Yeah, I think I should speak about it. Ah, no, speak about it, Kev. Who did it? Is it not Uncle This that did it? Ah, if you do that, what about his wife? What his wife say? How about the children? And then what would that, what would that do for our family? That's what Absalom said. He said, he's your brother. Probably the most stupid statement in the Bible. Don't take this thing to heart. What? She should just pack it aside like what happened. She just lost a bet or something. Don't take it to heart. We don't want this reputation to, to be soiled. And for many of us too, maybe that's what has happened to you. A family member did that and you have been conditioned. I don't want to bring, I don't want to bring his kidney down. And so we end up protecting the abuser instead of helping the abused. Shame on us. 
Absalom, it was because he had a revenge plan. It was going to take two years to fulfill. And he didn't want her to set Amnon into the plan. So he said, keep quiet. And the second one, keep quiet. Keep them quiet, the first, second, keep quiet. So if we kept them quiet, then we ourselves have to keep quiet, right? And hopefully, that will not be the case. I mean, hopefully now, Absalom was one thing, but David had died. David himself was deceived. You know that. Now, this is David, the king, the king after God's own heart. Surely David is going to do something. Because David understands that he's a representative of Israel's true king. Israel's true king is their God, Yahweh. And in Psalm 7 and 9, it tells us in verse 7 that Yahweh reigns forever as king. He has established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the peoples with equity. Yahweh is a refuge for the oppressed. A stronghold in the times of trouble. And of course, David is going to do and behave like Yahweh. Verse 21. When King David heard all this, he was furious. I told you, David is going to do something. The right emotion to show. He was furious. How can this happen to my kingdom? How can this happen to my daughter? And I was even put in the plot. Surely David is going to do something about it. And the worst place full stop you've ever seen in the Bible. David was furious, full stop. What a coward. I don't know why he did it. My guess, it wasn't just to protect the PR of the family. My guess that he did it because he couldn't, the inconvenience would have been too much. Even if you have to investigate these things, it can take long. It's long hours. It's going to intrude, you know, intrude in your time. And maybe the person is going to continue crying. It happened once, Abby. She can take one for the family. We all have to sacrifice. David did nothing. David did nothing. David kept quiet. And you can see increasing levels or increasing stages to keep her quiet. First stage, with Amnon, she is present, allowed to speak, and she's not listened to. With Absalom, she is present, but she's prevented from speaking. With David, she's not even present to speak at all. How many of us have heard of the word patriarchy, or the concept patriarchy? What is patriarchy? Well, I coined the definition as far as I understand it. Patriarchy, slightly long, is a socially oppressive system operated by men, consciously or unconsciously, with a goal to maintaining male dominance while directly stifling the flourishing of women by denying them reasonable opportunities to grow at best and subjecting them to various abuses at worst. It's a socially oppressive system, consciously or unconsciously, run by men, operated by men, and it has one goal, to keep male dominance. While at the same time, it wants to stop female flourishing. How does it achieve that? At best, it stops women giving them opportunities for growth, but at worst, it subjects them to various abuses. 
it is not a coincidence. This whole thing happened to Tamar and it happened with four men. Amnon and Jonadab were responsible for the disgrace that came upon Tamar. David and Absalom were responsible for that disgrace becoming desolation. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. Let me ask you. If you were a 14-year-old girl that had just been raped in Israel, but you saw what happened to the king's daughter, how the king's daughter could not get justice, even though she spoke out, let me ask you a question. Will you speak out about your own? No, I can't hear you. Will you speak out? Why? Because you would only get insult upon injury. You already have disgrace. But if you speak out, maybe you will not be believed. Or maybe you will be told to keep quiet. Or maybe you will be threatened if it involves a very powerful person. Too many girls and women in our societies have kept silent about their experiences because the power of patriarchy means that they will only get insult upon injury. Sadly, this is happening in churches. But you know we cannot speak against the man of God. Ah, which man of God is perfect? And if it comes out, what even happens? Not only is, it, is she not told to keep quiet, but she gets an onslaught of abuse. Maybe the church will say something like this. We don't answer insult. We will give a very robust reply very soon. All the while, we're not saying anything. And then all the followers or the people go against the lady. And then you say somebody else should speak out. My disgrace is enough. I don't want to become desolate. Sadly, we are more interested in protecting oppressors, institutions, and diabolically oppressive systems just so that they don't come tumbling down and we leave victims desolate. May God bring down every oppressive system. What is even sadder is that some people find the courage to come out years after only for them to be over-scrutinized with irrational fact-checking. Or with ignorant retorts like this. Why didn't you speak out around that time? First of all, you don't understand the disgrace they felt. Who likes to talk about the fact that they've been violated? The shame remains. But second, you don't understand how societies have treated these people. Most times, if they speak out, would you listen to them? Look at, she spoke to her brother and her father, but they didn't listen. In fact, she didn't get to see her dad. My brother said, don't worry, don't worry, I understand. Keep quiet. This needs to stop. Takes me to my third point. Healing of a sexual abuse victim. When I was preparing for this, I was haunted by her question in verse 13. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? Where can I get rid of it? Something so horrible has I've been violated. My temple has been sacralized. Is there any way I can get rid of my disgrace? Now, maybe like in NASA's case, 
For instance, he was sentenced to life, and many of his victims got settlement. But the truth is that most people, they never get any of these two things. Not even, I mean, forget the two. They don't even get one. And even when Amnon is killed two years after by Absalom, that had more to do with Absalom getting his revenge than him seeking justice for his sister. And you know what's so bad? We don't hear about Tamar again. It's like her voice is just being silenced. That's it. We move on. And the question is, will she actually ever get justice? Will her voice ever be heard? Because Tamar needs two things. though. She needs appropriate justice. That is, the evil that has been done to her needs to be punished. But the second thing she needs, she needs to be made new. That's the disgrace issue. Her shame needs to be taken away. And the question is, even if your perpetrator was sentenced for 50 years or 100 years, is that really enough? For some people, it's like, it's not enough. What if he lives for those 50 years and he comes out? That's it. No, you need not just justice, but appropriate justice. And the second thing is that even if you find fellow people that have been abused, which is a wonderful thing, so that people that understand what you've gone through, even if you find that, they are powerless to make you new. Tamar needed a king that was better than David and a brother that was better than Absalom to deliver justice that will make her new. What you need is someone that can help you, someone that can give you the justice for this thing that's happened to you, but at the same time making you new. And there's good news. Because that person does exist. You see, Stammer's voice wasn't silenced forever. Why? Because centuries later, a king in David's line, when seeing the oppression that his children had gone through, he was not only furious and forgot about it, he came down from his comfortable abode to do something about it. Centuries later, when someone saw the pain, the suffering of his brothers and his sisters, especially like those who have been sexually abused, he came, executed justice, not out of personal revenge against the oppressors, but with the goal of making the victims new. Jesus on the oppressive cross, a cross that was set up by an oppressive system. He was judged under an oppressive system. Jesus on the cross was disgraced for it was the most shameful way to die and he was left to be desolate. He did this so that he could identify with all kinds of victims who have been oppressed, just like sexually abused victims. He received the appropriate just punishment for their oppression and took away their shame if they call upon his name. Paul puts it in Romans 10 this way. In Romans 10 this way, he says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Jesus went to the cross to take away your shame. 
Jesus went to the cross to make you brand new. I promise you this. If you trust in him, you will be made new. Paul puts it in another sense in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. He said, for all those who trust in him, call upon his name, they will be a new creation. Because you don't just want your shame to be painted on like we paint on, you know, I don't know if you want to make this wall black, for instance. You just paint black on top of this. No, what you need is a brand new life. And Jesus says, uh, Paul says about what Jesus has done, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, and what? The new is here. Please understand me. Jesus gives you a new way of defining yourself, not by your abuse, but by the abuse that he suffered for you. He does so not by silencing your pain as though it doesn't matter. But what does he do? He absorbs the full force of it on the cross. Jesus is the only Savior, the only one who can fully sympathize with you. Why? Because he suffered the same thing you suffered, only more intensely. And with his own death, his own suffering, it wasn't just so that he could sit down with you here and say, Oh, let's discuss your own suffering, let me discuss my suffering. No, his death was for you. He absorbed your pain. But there's more. Because Jesus did not remain on the cross. No. He rose again. And in his resurrection, he transformed victims into victors. Paul again in Romans chapter 8. Who then is the one who condemns? Because what we need is a love that can transform us. Who is the one that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who has been raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or sexual abuse? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. 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 In all these things we are more than conquerors. Let me tell you this. Because of what Christ has done. In his death and his resurrection, you can look at your oppression, you can look at your oppressors and say, you no longer define me. Christ defines me. You can look at your oppressors, you can look at your oppression and say, I am a new woman, I am a new man in Christ. All things have passed away, literally have passed away. Why? Because in fact, Jesus was raised from the dead. For I am convinced. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor powers. Paul is he's, he's going into superlative categories now. Neither height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your oppressor and your abuser did not take love. They abused you. They violated your will. But Jesus is the one that brings a love to you. That overcomes everything they've done. He's here to make you new. Would you call upon his name? Would you call upon his name? And in closing, I want to say a word to us as a church. You know, the church, and I'm saying to, as a church, city church, the church is meant to be God's family, isn't it? Let's remember that. Let's not behave like David's family. Because my encouragement and my hope to people who have been abused and probably have not fully gotten over it here in this church is I want you to speak out. I'm not saying that we're going to bring you up here and tell you to speak. But I want you to speak. 
Speak about your story. We want to hear. The leaders to listen to you, particularly female leaders, if you are a female that has gone through this. But as a church, we have to behave like God's family. Let's be willing, number one, to listen to people's stories. Not that immediately they start wanting to talk about it, then you interject. It may cause you one day, it may cause you one week. And let's be willing to mourn with them. Because even though we rejoice with those that rejoice, what are we meant to do with those that mourn? Mourn with them. And let us also have a disposition to believe them. I'm not talking about being naive, but a disposition. Most times when these things happen, the first thing we want to do is to get them to prove it. Prove every single part of it. As though they should have had a video cam whilst the thing was happening as the way to prove it. No, let's not be like that. Let's be, have a disposition to believe them. Let us not set up impossible standards for proof, knowing that as they're talking about this thing, they're relieving pain that they would rather forget about, but they've been unable to forget. And when we've done all of these things, when we've empathized, when we've listened, know that your advice in itself cannot do much. Let's show them gospel love. Let's point them to the cross and the resurrection, not in a trite way, but showing them that it is God's renewal and justice that can help them. And then finally, let us pray and act. Notice two things. Pray and act against all systems of oppression that Christ died for. Christians should be active in this thing. Now, I know some of us that read blogs and everything, they'll call you names. They'll say that you are a liberal. They'll say social gospel. They'll say feminist. You know what? If you have to embrace those labels so that you can live out what Christ has called you to do, then embrace those labels gladly. But don't be distracted by these things. Why? Because God wants us, if you're a gospel-centered church, to do something. He wants us to act justly. He wants us to love mercy. For this is the only way to walk humbly before our God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that disturbs the comfortable but also comforts the disturbed. We pray for any of our brothers and sisters here who have had this harrowing thing happen to them, whatever age in life, to whatever degree. Lord, let them find that the justice, the redefinition and the renewal comes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we also pray for anyone who is here and has been an abuser. Father, let them bring them and grant them true repentance in you. Let them know that the gospel of Christ, the work of Christ is big enough to take care, to support the, the, abuser, the abused, but also to recover the abuser. And we pray for us as a church. And we can be a place of refuge, a place where people can find soccer, where people can find support, a place where we can be the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ. Help us to do all of this through Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church. Love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.